If you know me, you know I love whiskey. But sometimes I feel like I can't even muster up the energy to pour myself a drink at the end of a long day. I dream of the day that I can tell my kitchen what I'd like and it will materialize. Maybe a cheese plate and an old-fashioned? Hmm, why thank you. As much as we'd all love to have our own automated personal bartender in our kitchens, I'm afraid we'll have to wait until that technology actually exists. In the meantime, there's a company taking fundamental steps, inching closer to that sci-fi future of instant thirst-quenching appetite gratification. I would like to believe that in 10 generations, we'll have technologies like that. That's Alec Lee. Where we'll simply be able to say, give me my fettuccine Alfredo, and it materializes out of thin air. Alec and his company, Endless West, are putting in the necessary and deeply complex work to develop technology that was deemed impossible just a few years ago. We won't be able to create those foods of the future without understanding truly the building blocks that are required to create those things. Endless West is a molecular spirits company. They produce award-winning gins, brandies, and whiskeys using a technique that deconstructs these adult beverages down to the molecular level. We want to understand what are the molecules that make whiskey, and then we're starting with a blank canvas. A high-end whiskey usually requires at least 10 years of aging. Alex says Endless West is able to recreate these spirits in a single day, all while having never seen the inside of a barrel. I'm Kristen Meinzer, and this is Innovation Uncovered from Invesco QQQ. This episode, I'm talking with Alec Lee, co-founder and CEO of Endless West. Alec and his company are taking big strides in the food and beverage industry, changing the way we think and drink sip by sip. Alec, it is so nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Now, you call your product a molecular spirit, right? Yes. Now, why not call it whiskey to somebody like me who's just like a lay person who's going to the liquor store to buy something? Why not use those terms that somebody like me knows? Well, we do, depending on the product. Okay. So when we call ourselves a molecular spirits company, that's really our catch-all term for the various whiskey-based products or gin. We have brandy on the market as well. We're working on tequila-based products. You know, we have our sake product that technically is a spirit, is not a rice wine. So that's surface level answer to your question. But the deeper answer is there's a lot of laws in place that have been there since prohibition ended. We're extremely careful about how we say things, where we say them, when we say them, on what label, and what we call them. Glyph, for example, is not legally considered a just straight up whiskey, is in this special classification called distilled spirit specialty. Glyph is legally classified as a spirit whiskey with natural flavors. It has to be same font, all the same size. Unfortunately, what seems like a simple question is an incredibly nuanced and and difficult answer. I think in many ways, we figured out a way to sort of co-opt the critical parts of the industry and really find a way that we can bring value to various partners in the chain without really stepping on the toes of the traditional manufacturers. We're saying there's absolutely nothing wrong with 
great wines being made from grapes and great whiskey being aged in a barrel. But sometimes you want a different experience. That I think is is also part of our response to the industry of like, oh, you're just coming in to disrupt. And it's like, no, we're trying to create our own thing. And yours is still uniquely yours and we don't want to touch it. Now, can we talk about sustainability? Can you explain how that factors into what you're making? So think about like everything that it takes to get a traditional wine. Most of our country's grapes are grown in California in a place that is water constrained. And grapes need quite a bit of water. You're only going to get one harvest a year. And you're going to do a lot of work to get that harvest. You don't get a lot of finished product out per acre. Easiest way to sort of think about it is like, how many calories per acre can you get from any specific crop? That tells you how many people you can feed. That also gives you some sense of just the raw output of that crop. It's easily well over an order of magnitude increase in the number of calories you can get from corn. And if you grow it in the right place, you can get two harvests of corn per year. So you're effectively doubling the output. Of course, there's all sorts of other plants and yeast and things, but the bulk of the actual product, just in terms of its weight or its volume, is is water and is alcohol that is derived from corn. All these flavor molecules, all of that other stuff is tiny, tiny amounts on the order of sometimes parts per billion. So a gram of this stuff can last us a year of manufacturing. And so when we switch up the feedstock, you get so much more output on a per acre basis. And by virtue of that, it needs a lot less fuel to maintain, a lot less water on those crops. You get a lot more of your water from rain rather than having to pump it out of the aquifers. There's all sorts of benefits that you get out of that. And then corn is substantially more robust, if only because pests don't like it as much as they like grapes. And that includes rodents, fungi, weeds, includes any number of of things that require a great deal of pesticide application in the wine industry. And so it's massively disproportionate in terms of the things that we're, A, putting on the grapes themselves that inevitably end up in the wine, and B, end up in the environment. That's a metric that is a lot harder to just sort of blurt out, like, how many tons of CO2 are you saving? But it's something that actually matters a great deal in terms of how pesticides are killing bees, the potential health impacts, how those chemicals get into our waterways, how they affect people downstream, how they affect the farmers as well. What exactly is a molecular spirit, and how do you make it? So we have to create what ends up becoming a molecular profile, effectively a list of the molecules that are found in the specific product. And then we have to sort of parse through that. What are the things that are actually relevant to the sensory experience, to the flavor, the body, the the mouthfeel, the aroma, what matters and what doesn't? But we want to understand what are the molecules that make whiskey, and then we're starting with a blank canvas. And that blank canvas is water and neutral spirits, as neutral and clean as possible, So that when we add our individual components, one component at a time, we have a lot more control over that flavor profile at the end. That's where we actually derive most of the sustainability advantages. Using neutral alcohol is about as scalable as you can possibly get. 
because we don't have to worry about the specific grain mash and how it's fermented and all that. Very interesting. Okay, so having more control of those flavor profiles is clearly important. What's one of the first individual components on that list you usually look for? The simplest example is sugar. The sugar molecule that you would find in a grape that ends up being fermented into alcohol and also partially ends up being in that finished beverage, depending on how dry your wine is, is the exact same sugar molecule that you find in sugarcane or beets, whether you can get from corn. And corn is a much more sustainable crop than grapes. And we go one flavor profile, one molecule at a time to sort of rebuild and create a new flavor profile of something that is, at a molecular level, whiskey or wine or brandy or whatever it happens to be. But obviously it wasn't aged in a barrel and has each of those flavor vectors, if you will, chosen and controlled. And can you explain where you get those flavor vectors from? Do you have a team that goes out and harvests different botanicals? How, how does all that work? A lot of that happens upstream of us. We'll usually directly source them from various wholesalers and suppliers. But yes, ultimately, all the components that we use are derived from a plant, a yeast, a fruit, vegetable, some something in nature. There is some that we have to do that we're not able to commercially source, certain extracts we have to get out of wood, etc. But the vast majority of things are, are things that we're able to source. Taking a vanilla bean and putting it in alcohol to sort of infuse that alcohol with the vanilla is to us a blunt instrument, right? Because there's so many different molecules and so many different flavors. We can't actually control each one of them that way. So we need to split that up. You can concentrate them in various ways so that you can get them one at a time. And that's ultimately our raw material, right? Is the pure molecule so that we have that full control. Now, it still came from a bean or some fruit or some leaf, but rather than just having that crude extract, it's sort of taken further to get those individual molecules out. The knowledge and experience the team at Endless West possesses is a culmination of years of hard work, tons of research, and a touch of indecision. Alec hadn't always been involved in the spirits industry. Although prior professions led him to where he is now, he says he wasn't entirely keen on pursuing some of those past roles, worrying he'd be stuck for the rest of his life. But his worries were lifted as his co-founder had an epiphany while on a wine tour in Napa Valley. My understanding is that you're a business school dropout or you left grad school early. Is that right? Well, that's certainly part of the story, although perhaps just sort of tangentially related. I, I did drop out of business school in order to start what ended up becoming the predecessor to Endless West. The story starts a lot earlier where I originally thought I was going to be a doctor. And so I was studying for the MCAT and trying to do the whole pre-med thing. But I ended up starting a company with my co-founder, helping other students prepare for standardized tests. This was an online-only company in the very, very early days of ed tech online. We kind of really felt like pioneers in that space at the time, which was exhilarating to me in a way that being a pre-med wasn't. My co-founder ended up becoming a doctor. I ended up not. So I ran that company for several years after undergrad. And that's also how I found myself in business school, realizing I didn't want to get pigeonholed into ed tech or really in, into any one specific thing. I wanted to see what else was out there. And 
after the first year of the MBA, I really just sort of found an opportunity to work with the person who would end up becoming my now co-founder, Martin. And then Martin and I ended up sort of working on what became Endless West as a nights and weekends project. I find it really fascinating because on the surface, it may seem like what you're doing now has nothing to do with what you first started out doing. But I kind of feel like there's an overlap there. There are things like molecular biology and beakers and things like that involved in studying to be a doctor, right? And now you're the head of a spirits company, which is using some of that same knowledge to make something innovative. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. When Martin and I first started, we certainly had no expertise in the wine and spirits industry, but we've got sort of this this core skill set of poring over academic literature, finding out what else has been done in the industry and, and seeing what we might be able to add that's new. So it's all flowed not too illogically in the end, even though at a 30,000 foot level, it seems to be completely disconnected. <laughs> and tell us about how Endless West started. What made you think, I have no experience in the spirits industry, but I'm going to start a spirits company? Yeah, the idea just sort of sat in the back of my mind for a number of years. And so fast forward to fall of 2015, Martin goes in this Napa Valley winery tour. He goes to Gurgich Hill's estate. Mike Gurgich was the head winemaker at Chateau Montalena in the 70s. And he created the famous Chateau Montalena Chardonnay that won the Judgment of Paris to sort of became this pivotal moment to put American wines on the map. But this became this really big scandal because it was American wines against French wines with all French judges, and the French judges ended up picking the American wine and then tried to retract their ballots afterwards after they realized <laughs> what they'd done. It's exceptionally unlikely that was the first year that American wines were great. And yet somehow it was a big cultural moment where there was suddenly this acknowledgement of actually, oh yes, there is great wine to be made outside of France and Italy. So he sees this bottle behind this plexiglass case and he's like, can I try it? And of course they say no. I mean, <laughs> why would they? It's, they're like, this is our last bottle. It's really just here for display. We don't sell this. So he comes back and he's like, hey, there's a bunch of companies working on sort of deconstructing these food products. Why couldn't we do this in wine? And so I sat there quietly for so long, saying absolutely nothing to him in this like grungy little lab of ours that he was like, did you hear me? <laughs> and I said, the only thing I could say was, this is either the worst idea I've ever heard or the best idea I've ever heard, but we have to find out which one it is. So, so that's how we found ourselves here. And I'm curious, if I were to walk into your facility, what would it look like? Does everybody have on like lab coats? Are there beakers everywhere? Like Petri dishes? What, what does it look like there? Well, certainly we are compliant with normal lab safety standards. It looks a lot like any kind of chemistry lab, not too dissimilar from what most people would have seen in high school chemistry or biology. Obviously, certain things need to be properly ventilated because they're extremely concentrated. That's where we develop the product but that's not where we make it. Where we actually manufacture it looks a lot more like a traditional winery or distillery or, or brewery. In fact, we get to use a lot of the exact same equipment that most of the industry uses. That's another part of the reason why what we do is so 
ultimately scalable and cost-effective is because we don't need really specialized custom hardware for manufacturing processing techniques. Yeah, and I've been fortunate enough to tour a few of them over the years. And yeah, there are barrels everywhere and you can kind of smell the aging depending on what kind of facility you're visiting and so on. And they always remind you, this has been in this barrel for this many years. How long are your products actually in the stills or the barrels? The manufacturing process takes roughly a day, depending on where, a single what we're day, making. One day? One single day, yeah. <laughs> oh so we, we can start a batch today, and tomorrow it'll be ready to, to put in a bottle. Some things can actually be done faster, depending on what it is. Fortunately for us, there, there's no barrels that have to sit there for many years. It's all efficient throughput. Alec has set a high bar. Maintain a quality product that's top shelf in every way except price. And he's found a way to keep those expenses down through innovations in molecular extraction, allowing for broader scalability and sustainability. Alec has dreams for the future of food and beverage and the planet that he hopes to see come to fruition. Now, Endless West's approach, it, it seems to have big implications for the future of food. Where do you see the future of food? Do you think we're all going to be 3D printing food in the future? I would like to believe that in 10 generations, we'll have technologies like that where we'll simply be able to say, give me my fettuccine Alfredo, and it materializes out of thin air. We won't be able to create those foods of the future without understanding truly the building blocks that are required to create those things. We're coming to an intersection of where it's not just technically feasible to understand those building blocks, but consumers are actually willing to acknowledge that the traditional way of doing things isn't going to be sustainable for us in the long run, and that we have to find new ways of making food and beverage. I do think that the food of the future is still grown from plants and processed in such a way that we can create that diversity of food and nutrition that we're looking for, things that are clean, that are safe, that are sustainable, that are scalable and, and accessible and cost-effective to feed the growing population. That, I think, is, is the future. We just won't be able to make the food and beverage that we enjoy today anymore at all if we don't figure out how to archive it now. And when I actually sample one of your products, let's say I'm sampling something that, you know, is normally going to be consumed by the whiskey drinker. Let's say I take a sip of something from there. Am I going to be able to say immediately like, oh, this doesn't taste anything like whiskey? Or is it going to taste very similar to whiskey? It would taste like whiskey. If you tasted any of the raw materials before they get mixed together, of course, none of them taste like whiskey. There isn't some whiskey molecule that just tastes like whiskey and like, oh, we just need to add more whiskey to it and then it's more whiskey-like. <laughs> it's not like that. You know, most recently, one of our whiskey products was the fifth highest ranking whiskey in the world of all that were submitted to the London Wine and Spirits Competition. I think there's something to be said, not just about the fact that won all these awards, but also about the fact that it's substantially cheaper than anything else that beat it. And that's a necessary part of the magic for us. Wow. Well, 
this has been so fantastic. I live in a whiskey household. And so Got it. Okay, nice. I don't know whether to be intimidated by that or or excited by that because whiskey households often have extremely high standards. Oh no, I have no standards. Nice. Well so, I'm excited to hear what you think. I won't even tell my husband what it is. That's oh, the best way to do it. He'll be yeah. amazed. <laughs> Alec, this has been a blast, and I can hardly wait to break into this bottle right now. Thank you. I'm really excited for you to try it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Innovation Uncovered from Invesco QQQ. Next time, I'll be chatting with Josh Bongard and Mike Levin, a roboticist and a biologist about their discoveries in the world of living robots. If you have a self-replicating machine that can fix one small part of the environment and you release that machine and it makes more machines that clean up more parts of the environment, it's much more economically feasible to solve the problem. Subscribe to Innovation Uncovered and if you like what you hear, leave us a review. Cheers. Season two of Innovation Uncovered is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, ordinary people who shape the future by putting their money behind the right ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you to access the innovators of the NASDAQ 100, so you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. To learn more about what this fund can mean for your portfolio, visit Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks involved with investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs are subject to risks similar to those of stocks. Investments focused in the technology sector are subject to greater risk and are more greatly impacted by market volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies traded on the NASDAQ. An investment cannot be made directly into an index. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers, are based on current market conditions, and are subject to change without notice. These opinions may differ from those of other Invesco investment professionals. Invesco is not affiliated with T-Brand Studio, Kristen Meinzer, or any of the subjects or companies referenced in this episode. This content should not be construed as an endorsement for or a recommendation to invest in any of the companies referenced in this episode. Invesco Distributors, Inc.